can't shake the sound of the inmates in the New York Metropolitan Detention Center in early 2019, banging on their windows with cups or whatever they could use to get the attention of people outside the prison building because they did not have heat or medical attention. They were calling out for their lives in the only way they could. This sticks with me because it is a clear example of how forgotten incarcerated individuals are in American society. Now that we are approaching a year of COVID-19 in America, our incarcerated population are being pushed to their limits even more. We want to share some of our connections to those incarcerated and returning citizens and the reality of their experiences here in Wisconsin. This is Eli Steenlidge, and you're about to hear some justified anger. And that also, you know, messes with us personally, mentally, you know what I'm saying? It frustrates us more, it causes, you know, anxiety, we, we can't help our loved ones, we can't help ourselves, we can't do anything about this. So, you know, once again, me personally, on top of serving a heinous and horrific sentence for what I did wrong, now there's a possibility that I can get sick and quite possibly die because I suffer from asthma from this virus. Right. There, there's, you know, it's, I, 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 I'm, I'm at a loss for words because once again, once you get to this point where I'm at, where it's just constant frustration and constant, you know, it's like you're blind because they won't say anything and they're not doing anything to help us at all. That audio was from early in 2020 in a conversation with Rebecca Barber housing coordinator for Nehemiah. Her conversations with incarcerated individuals impacted by the COVID pandemic started because of a love of hip hop. You are now listening to the Universal Soul What's going down? It's your man DJ Payne One, and your tune is 89.9 WORT with Boss Lady and the Universal Soul Explosion. Hold up, don't even think about turning that dial. Keep it locked. Universal Soul Explosion. So, uh, as far back as I can remember, I've always been a fan of music and I've always been a fan of hip hop. And it's just kind of been, um, I don't have a significant point in time where I started to uh, listen to hip hop. It was just, it's always been there. I started subbing actually for another radio host over at WORT back in um, 2010, I believe it was. And, uh, once I started subbing more often and coming back and coming back, eventually it just became that I was coming regularly. And eventually they just said, hey, this is just going to be your show. So it was one of those instances where it just kind of uh, took over and took off. That's right, you're tuned in. It's 89.9 FM WORT, Madison, Wisco. We are keeping it new, new, new this week. It's 2021. We got the new ish going on for you. We're going to keep the music going here. Just keep it locked. We have shout-outs coming up on the way. And more, 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 more. 
<laughs> Keep it locked. Over the years, you know, hip hop being, as far as its history, being started as a a voice for for uh, for black individuals. Um, you know, it has changed somewhat. Obviously, there's there's still you know some growth that that's occurred over the years, but it's it's still looked at as you know a voice for the African American culture, if you want to put it that way. In the state of Wisconsin, you know, the the link between all of this is we have one of the highest black male incarceration rates in the nation. So when you think of the listening base and the demographic of those that tune in to the show, being that it's hip hop and being that that's predominantly a black culture or genre, the connection there is very strong. You know, I'm also a board member of the Urban Community Arts Network, which is also known as UCAN. And UCAN has had many studies that were done um, actually looking at hip-hop in, in full length and detail. And one of the misconceptions surrounding the music itself is that it, you know, supports and, and glorifies, you know, violence and, and things like that. Um, and that, you know, whenever there's hip-hop shows or there's things that are happening, you know, the, sometimes it's portrayed as it, it's, it, it ties into the people that listen to hip-hop. And, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions that go along with the music itself as far as from a black and white standpoint. And one of the studies that was done by the UW-Madison just quite recently within the last year or two actually looked at all of the incidents and arrests and calls, police calls that were made in the Madison area based on genre of music or what type of event was being held. And what they found was is that there was no more police calls made from a hip-hop event than other genres of music. So what a lot of people do think is that, you know, uh, hip-hop is a certain type of, of, of people and it's a certain type of vibe and it's a certain type of thing. But what I think people are failing to realize is that that's actually a misconception. However, when you look at a state that has a highest black male incarceration rate, one of the highest in the nation, and that directly ties into this this uh, demographic of who would listen to the music or what they say or what they sing about, you have to remember that a lot of these uh, things that people talk about in the music is expression of maybe what they're going through, what they've lived, their, learned, their lived experiences and what their current issues are. And when you have an already oppressed demographic, it it just, you know, it it's more so that you are resonating and you're finding a way to cling to that particular genre because it makes sense to you, because that's what your life is like and that's what you've been living. And it's not that they're glorifying it. It's that, you know, that's something that they can relate to because that's, you know, what they lived with or they, they're familiar with and that's what home looks like and that's what their current state of being looks like. I mean, we can see right now, even in current times, what we're, what we're going through and the differences between um, racial biases. So there's a very strong connection between the type of music that's being played um, and those that are listening in and what their life experiences are. And just prior to WORT, I actually, I was also a manager of a staffing service on the south side of Madison that um, directly interacted with the same demographic as the demographic that happens to tune in to the show. So as far as the name Boss Lady goes, I actually got that from my former, uh, my former employer status, if you want to call it. You know, people would come into the office and they would be applying for jobs and applying for work. And 
they would tell their their buddies, you know, go see Boss Lady, go talk to Boss Lady, and it just kind of stuck. So that is the name that you hear also on the radio as well. Um, as far as the connection between the two, you know, you uh, create a, a, a relationship with the community, and you know, when when you have a listening base on the radio that's dealing with the same type of issues as those that are outside of the walls and are looking for work, you know, you have a whole circle of what is it like to be inside and then also what does that re-entry process look like. And not only that, but you get to know individuals who are actually going through it. So you see the revolving door effect of what were you doing before you went in, then you went in, and then you got out, and I got to see the whole process and create those those uh, relationships and connections that way. So that's how that all kind of ties together. Hey, so I hope you're enjoying the new-ish. It's 2021. We're starting it off with the new, 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 new. Man, it's, you know, one of those things where it's a new year, but I don't feel like things change just because the date changes. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's important to remember to change yourself every single day. You know, I mean, you can't just wait for one milestone. You don't, you don't want to suffer from that Friday syndrome. That Friday syndrome where you always wait until that day or until that something or until that event. You know, you got to enjoy some of the things that you have going on right now and understand that you have so much in your control that you can make changes every single day. Every single day you can do something to better yourself. So if you have made a New Year's resolution, that's wonderful, that's great, just stick to it. Make sure you make a Tuesday resolution and a Sunday and a Monday and every single day of the week make a new resolution, stick to it. Always become the best person that you can be. Um, the hip-hop shows have been uh, access point, I guess, for the community to be able to call in. And the beauty of having the community radio station is that a lot of it was before the pandemic was live in person. So you could actually take phone calls and put people on the air. So when I first started, it had already been kind of trending that you know family members could call into the radio station and give shout outs and say messages, happy birthdays. They could say thinking of you, keep your head up. And those individuals that are incarcerated that were listening to the radio at that time could hear their loved ones and hear those voices at that moment. And then you also wait for the next week to be able to talk about you know, what's coming on, what's going on in the community. There's just been this connection. Also have another shout out to read here. We have Larry in Oregon to Amber in Janesville. Love you, miss you till Titan and back. And then I have another one here to Dow at CCI Portage. He says, free me and the guys. <laughs> That's what it's up. That's what's up. Hey, shout out to all the ladies that are listening too. Shout out to all the women that are tuned in. We haven't forgot about you. It's all love, all love. Keep it locked. Let's get the music back going. Here you go. Universal Soul Explosion was originally began with a black woman back in 1974. So it's it's a long-standing it's long show. It's, it's not a new show, but it has changed hands and had different hosts over the years. But I think the, the general uh, mission of the, of the show has always been the same, and that was just kind of, you know, allowing a space for 
the black community to have you know uncensored music and a voice and a place to be recognized and um, have a slot to to actually you know express the current events and and everything you know all encompassed into one one group. So luckily for me, already having connection with you know the understanding of what people were going through from the employee standpoint being the manager of the uh, staffing service, I also was able to then gain the knowledge of what was going on on the inside by sitting in in this radio program and hearing directly from the families of the individuals that were behind the walls. And then also at that time, you know, being live in the stu- studio, I got a lot of mail, I got a lot of letters, and then now we also have access to emails. So there's still communication going on at this point as far as those those ones that are behind the walls with what's going on outside of the walls via that radio show. At Oregon Correctional Center to accept this call, press or say five. To refuse this call calls other than proper behaviors, attorney calls may be monitored and recorded. Thank you for using IC Solutions. You may begin speaking now. All right. So first of all, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this interview. I appreciate it. No problem, no problem. Thank you for having me. All right. So first of all, how are you feeling through all of this as far as, um, you know, physically and emotionally? What is, what is it that you're feeling right now? Well, for me personally, the feeling is, is mostly frustration. Uh, you know, being at a place that's so small, Oregon Correctional Center is a very small center. And, uh, you know, a lot of people here don't know what's going on. So because they are unaware of, you know, the seriousness of this of this virus and, you know, w- what can happen if one catches it, especially in this small place, you know, uh, I feel like the steps that should be taken to prevent us from catching it at all are not being taken. So, you know, it's just more frustration than anything else. Yeah, so but, how, uh, as far as how do you get your information? Like, how, how are they notifying you or telling you what's going on as far as for you to be able to know what precautions they're taking versus what should be taking. How, how are you getting your information on the inside? Well, the steps that should be taken first and foremost is, uh, you know, the staff that's coming in and out of this place should be more protected. You know, um, they're not wearing masks. Uh, I don't know. We, we are told that they're taking precautions, like as far as taking temperatures and stuff like that, but we don't know that. We don't get to see that. As far as the overall attitude from staff, most don't even take it serious. So it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's almost taken like it's a big game. Like, you know, it's not going to be serious until someone catches it. So, Rebecca, you've been doing the radio show that gives you a connection and a relationship with the incarcerated community and those who have been impacted by incarceration. When did you first start hearing about what was happening with the pandemic within the correction system? And what were you hearing about people's experiences while they were incarcerated? Being with the station for 10 years already, you know, you have so many different things that happen over the course of that time, whether it be, you know, current events, um, tragedies, loss, celebrations, etc. And you see things change kind of over the years as far as uh, how people are dealing with it and, and things like that. But when the pandemic started, I think it was almost instantaneous that I saw a big shift in how things were being handled. So a lot of things shut down, but let me do, let me clarify that. So, for example, some of the gentlemen that were doing uh, work release programs in the minimum security facilities, they were instantly 
stopped from going to work and all visits were stopped. And, you know, within another month or two, it looked like uh, phone calls were being stopped. Basically, a lot of what I was hearing from all of the facilities, although there was there were a lot of things that were different, there was a lot of things that were the same. And so what I mean by that is um, their strategic plans that were within facilities of what they were going to do about the pandemic varied from facility to facility. But it seemed like overall, all facilities had an immediate shutdown and cut off from the outside world. So a lot of the information that they were receiving was only through the memos that the DOC was putting out or if a family member could could still write in or doing the emails. But I noticed that it was very uh, traumatic because people didn't really know what was going on outside. Are their family members okay? They can't speak with them. What do we do inside? How am I supposed to take care of myself? What if it comes in? And the biggest change that I saw and the most um, immediate was an overall panic of feeling like a sitting duck. So it seemed as if uh, the majority of the people that were writing in were just saying like, hey, you know, we're, we're just, we're stuck here. We don't know what to do. And then from that point, there was a lot of kind of checking back and forth, even with me to say, hey, you know, they, we, they were told that they were, we were supposed to wear masks, but we don't have any yet. Or some of the officers aren't wearing masks or more details. Are we supposed to be doing this? So like I said, I think a lot of the information that they were receiving wasn't really being clear, or if they were receiving a memo that this is what we're going to do, they weren't actually seeing it being put into place. So the first initial reaction to it was was just an overall sense of helplessness and um, just, like I said, overall panic. Letters from the prison. It is the 11th day of quarantine and nothing has changed. We're not allowed to leave our cells except to shower and clean our cell. What's mind boggling is the prison's decision to force the non-infected to quarantine with those infected. I'm in this situation. My cell is tested positive, but I tested negative. Yet, they forced me to stay in the cell. When I challenged HSU about it, they told me it was better that I be exposed to the virus rather than move me to a cell with someone who was non-infected. Four days later, I began experiencing mild symptoms, such as breathing difficulties, body aches, chest pains, sore throat, loss of smell and taste. I requested to see a nurse, but the guards wouldn't call them. So I had to send word via non-infected individual to call my family and let them know. They called and pursued the prison to have HSU see me. I was retested but have yet to receive the results. We got word from the guards that come Monday that HSU will pop us out individual to give us a wellness check before removing us from quarantine. This should be a wake up call to all of us. These walls, for we are 
at the mercy of the prisons. Decision makers, when it comes to matters of our health, I'm fortunate in that I was able to purchase medicines, items from the canteen and have support from the outside to check on me. What about those who can't, who will speak up on their behalf? I'm grateful for you, boss lady, AKA Rebecca, and those unlike you who are fighting for us tirelessly. I know that progress seems slow, if not existent on some days, but y'all are moving us forward toward a more just and equitable system. Thank you for what you are doing. It means so much to know that there are people out there who care about us on the inside. Peace. I have a, a good friend actually that's in New Lisbon Correctional and he he was worried because the way that they did it there was that they actually changed the amount of phone calls you could make per week and per it's not even per day anymore. You would have to sign up for slots and if you wrote down the time, say you were going to call home at 4 o'clock, if you tried to call at 4 o'clock right when the time started and it took them, say, a minute or two to answer the phone or to get the person on the line, that still came out of your time. And, you know, him having a couple small children, he would be in the middle of a conversation with the child and the officer would say, okay, your 15 minutes is up, I hang up, and, and the phone would disconnect. And there was no there's no compassion or, or moment to give you a warning or a heads up or to say, hey, your conversation's almost over. And it leaves the children with a sense of what's going on. You know, where's my parent? Um, why can't I speak with my parent? I don't know if they're okay. You don't have video visits. You can't see each other. Um, some of the other things that were that were concerns were, you know, that someone would find out that their family member contracted COVID on the outside and there was no way to check in with the family members. There's no way to see, are they doing okay? Have they made it? There has been individuals that had received word that family members passed while they were incarcerated from the outside. There's no goodbye. There's no closure. There's no way to, nothing. Um, And taking that one step further for the guys on the inside, when, when COVID did enter and infiltrate, you know, then you're dealing with your, your cellmate or someone that you had spent, you know, say 20, 30 years of your life next to pass away in the, in the cell next door. Shannon Ross is an energetic advocate for the incarcerated community. Since he was released in September of 2020, after serving 17 years in prison since he was a teenager, Shannon has hit the ground running. In fact, he had our phone conversation from his car while he waited for a friend that he drove to an appointment. Although he admitted that many people advised him to take the re-entry process slowly and carefully, he has been preparing for this transitional moment for years while still incarcerated. It's, it's something that I, I feel bad a lot talking about the re-entry journey because my, 
my journey has been, and this is what I always expected it to be. Um, all the years I was inside, I felt like I was preparing myself and I was staying prepared at a level that would make it very easy for me to return. But I would always be very respectful of guys who would come back or guys that I knew who had gotten out and would say, don't expect that, you know, it's going to be tough. And so I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heed that because I, I haven't been out there. I don't want to be naive about it. I'm going to just go out and, you know, just keep preparing. And, you know, when my time comes, I'll deal with it as best I can as, I, as I've been getting myself ready for it. And it's been exactly as I expected for me. It's been like riding a bike. I, I have had no problems. I've never once been overwhelmed. And I jumped fully cannonball into this crap right away. Like immediately I've had all these things coming at me and I've been handling them. I feel just, you know, fantastically. So I haven't, I've had a few times where I was stressed out about things because people wanted me to spend time with them and I had work. And my whole thing has never been, I want to get out and party and you know, mess with a lot of women or drink or do drugs. That was, those are never the things that I had any dreams about getting into. It was the autonomy I could not wait for. The ability to get back into a place where I could decide what lane I'm taking and how far I'm going down it at what pace. And that has been so beautiful for me to just do all these things. And that's why I keep taking on these extra hats and I keep doing things that people are like, okay, we don't want to give you more. I'm like, no, I'm good. I got, I got some shelves still for that. So, you know, and I, eventually I'll find out, you know, what my my limit is and i've just i've just been loving that autonomy that ability to just work you know other people they get out and they want to spend time doing this and they want to go out and hang out and just be free and for me it's been you know i've been hanging out doing nothing in my opinion i mean i've been doing stuff but it just in my mind it has not been what i wanted to for so long that i want to just keep spending this energy that i've had built up on doing stuff constantly right now and that's been so so much of a joy for me just being able to do things and create things and work on things that I've been developing in my mind for so long. And Shannon has certainly been busy. He started a nonprofit while still in prison called The Community that has provided newsletters for incarcerated people as well as educational resources. Their recent effort is the Correct the Narrative campaign that confronts people and communities with the humanity, success, potential, and agency of those incarcerated. I asked him about his experiences while incarcerated before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. So prison is, you know, obviously very regimented where we have a set schedule where you have to be there for count, you have meals at a certain time, people have to be to work at a certain time depending on their job. Most people don't have jobs actually, uh, but they might have a program, which is a version of a job. They'll pay you for a lot of the programs at the same rate they would pay you for one of the entry level jobs. And, you know, of course, these jobs are all paid between 12 cents an hour and 49 cents an hour, with the mass majority being um, under 30 cents an hour. Very, very few people make more than 35 cents an hour or 30 cents an hour. Uh, it's the top rate jobs, which are very limited at each facility. So it's just a regimented schedule that everybody has throughout the day. Even if you don't have a program or a job, you still have count you have to be in room for. You still have a meal time that you have to go to. No matter what, there's a lot of regimentation to the whole process. And so the, the key thing that I believe changed during COVID would be the quality of opportunities throughout your day to do something productive, do something to make the day go by, do something to uh, reach out to family. So access to you know, phone calls became uh, less available. Um, access to email became less available for People who didn't have, we have the tablets inside. And so if you don't have a tablet, you have to use what is called the kiosk. And it's in the day room and you have a certain amount of time. You can be on it and they kick you off. And 
depending on what facility, there's only a certain amount of times during the day you can use it. So that became a little more limited. Um, then rec became extremely limited. You know, there was, there was a lot of things that guys couldn't do uh, anymore at all, or they could only do in certain uh, time frames during the day, or they had to be more distanced. So it was just things of that nature that are going out in society were happening inside as well. It's, it's a microcosm in there. So, you know, everything that's going on in here is going on in there. And it's just everything's at a, at a, a worse quality uh, to some degree. So, you know, our lives in there were already a worse quality, of course, because of the regimentation and the lack of um, opportunities and, and, and things that one would want to do. So then when that got even worse, it was just, you know, everything out here got worse, everything inside got worse, worse, like, you know, uh, exponentially worse. So it was just the access to ways to handle your day in, in, in a way that you allows you to cope with the struggle of being incarcerated or the uh, lack of access to family and to um, opportunities, education opportunities, job opportunities, to leisure opportunities, whatever it may be. It's just everything got tougher to, uh, to handle. So just a lot of things really slowed down in every sense. Again, just, just like outside. But inside, there weren't any other ways to get around it. Like outside, if you have a job and you lose your job or something happens, you have some way to get maybe another job. Or you have another avenue you can take to make up for what you lost. Uh, school, same thing. If school shuts down, you have other things you can do online to learn something to keep up with it. Inside, like when the small opportunities would disappear, it was like completely disappearing. So you'd either have to do something illegal to find a way around it. Uh, against the rules, I mean illegal, not like actual real world illegal. Prison illegal is a whole different game. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's mostly petty crap that just gives them an, uh, a reason to keep you in line or to make you feel inferior. But a lot of it's really nothing actually bad or illegal. And so that's, that's kind of what it was. It was just a, a further shrinking of opportunities to make something of your day or get by in a way that would be mentally healthy. So, you know, just it was tougher to handle the day when, when COVID came because of all the restrictions. And then on top of that is the, again, out here, when everything changed, people still had ways of getting around. It was just tougher. Inside, it, you can't get away from other people that, in the social distancing sense. There was no, absolutely no possibility. I mean, you could go to the hole, but then they could just give you a cellmate in the hole who also was, you know, maybe a, a risk of having COVID or probably did have COVID and they put him in there to quarantine him. So, there was no way to get away from it. Staff were not as around where I was at. Um, some places were slower to get to that stage. And some places, it sounds like from our readership, never really got to that stage. Uh, I know somebody just last week who said he was pat, pat searched by someone and he asked the guard, could he change gloves? Because the pat search one person, he said, can you change gloves before you pat search me? And, he, you know, guard makes a big deal. Like, no, you know, if I'm not changing the gloves, I don't have to, blah, blah, blah. And they uh, put him in the, they put him, they locked him in a room for a while and to kind of intimidate him to make it seem like, you know, don't, don't ever try and challenge us again about that. All he did was say, I just want you to change gloves. And I you know, kind of uh, was just making a point to voice how unfair it was that he had no choice to get around it. And so where I was at, they had kind of gotten away from pat downs and room searches, but some places didn't. But even where I was, even with the reduced, uh, pat downs and room searches they would still be around us they could still walk right up on you and you, you had no choice but to talk to them or be around them or you would go into the hole or you would get something on your record that would make it more difficult to get out of that prison or maybe even get released period if it was parole so just a variety of things just made it even more difficult to operate in that already very difficult to operate environment when COVID happened I do want to take a moment to give some perspective 
on where Wisconsin correctional facilities are in our COVID crisis. According to the Marshall Project and Associated Press, there have been at least 642 cases of coronavirus reported among prisoners in Wisconsin as of this recording. There have been at least 25 deaths from coronavirus reported among prisoners in Wisconsin. That means three in seven prisoners have tested positive, 4.6 times the rate in Wisconsin overall. And one in 944 prisoners have died so far. I was, I was privileged enough to have a meeting a couple weeks ago through Nehemiah on a Zoom uh, panel discussion. And one of the, one of the other panelists that were, were there that day was Secretary Kevin Carr. And, you know, he made a statement about the fact that they are reducing the population and um, gave some numbers and some facts and things like that. He also did say that they are expanding their ERP program. So there are some things now that are coming to light that they, they're working on um, that, is being, that is being said. However, I just wanted to point out that although some of the population has been reduced by around 3,000, as, as he had mentioned on that particular panel, we are still over the designed capacity. We are still over. We have too many people in the buildings than we should have. Um, regardless of the pandemic. So one major factor that is still a, a concern here, and it's not just for those that are incarcerated. This is also concerned with the number of staff members and those from our community that we're expecting to be able to go to work and come home from work and still be able to maintain uh, their mental health as well. So we have way too many people in the prisons. And although these ERP programs and things are starting to... Uh, be looked at as far as letting people out. Um, not early. You can't. You don't look at it as an early because they're not really getting an early. What they're doing is when you start to look at the amount of time that is given to individuals for crimes that they are found guilty of in the court of law, there is still incarceration after incarceration. So someone might spend six years in the prison system and another six years on supervision after they are released. So although you still see these people saying now that an early release program is an option, that doesn't relieve them of their remaining time. They are still technically incarcerated until that uh, extended supervision is, is done. So what we're trying to do here is get this to more of a manageable number because right now we are not at that at all. And the progress that's been made is not enough to consider being progress. It is not, it's still over. So the other thing to keep in mind as well is that if in fact these things are being done to try to make uh, the numbers go down and have people uh, move through, we're not hearing that. Um, Governor Evers hasn't made any statements on this. We should have done these things a long time ago. So a lot of the community now is wondering, well, why does it make sense to do it now? You know, everybody's getting hit at their in prison. The thing is, is that this is still a revolving door. And as long as we have crimeless revocations at our red ready fingertips, and as long as we still have um, allegations that could be putting people in jail for long periods of time before they are found to be able to be back into society. And as long as we have community corrections where people are basically, you know, one foot in and one foot out, but we're not letting them move forward, as long as we still have these numbers where they are, 
all of these things are still a concern for the community as a whole because you're still generating mental health issues. You're still generating problems as far as the COVID is not going to stop if it's if it's in a revolving door situation like this. It's not going to be able to be reduced if we don't reduce the number of people that have access to it. There's a lot of other concerns that are still going to continue until actual facts and and changes be made. And I think that's one thing that we can all keep in mind is we can read about what are their plans, but really start to poke around and say what's been done so far. What has been done? What are we seeing that's changing? And then we also need to be able to hold accountability for that. If if things are if things are saying, "Oh, we're in the process of looking at these ERP programs." Also keep in mind that the courthouse is, is, is mainly closed. So now you have this process of ERP, but these things still have to go through the court process. And if our court process is delayed, it's not fast enough. Things aren't happening at a speed that can save lives. And I think that that's not only one concern of mine, but it's a concern for, for each and every individual that, that writes in, that cries, that feels, that breathes, that wants an opportunity to be able to get back to their life and and improve their life, it's a concern. And, and frankly, it should be concern for all of us because this isn't a them and us situation. It's, it's our community as a whole. Clear and accurate information about conditions and experiences in the correctional system in Wisconsin have been hard to find. So it made me curious why Rebecca Barber felt like those that were incarcerated felt inclined to reach out to her specifically. All right, so with the communication that comes in with the radio station via email or letters or things like that, I think it has become such a staple within the community um, inside and outside because of the longstanding consistency. And I, I believe that if you are... If you're familiar with from your own experience or if you know someone that's gone through the system, one thing is there's not a lot of people you can count on um, and there's always a lot of change. So when there is something that's consistent, that's familiar, that's that's steadfast and that you can trust that will be there for you for a long time, that's it's very far and few between that you ever have those moments or those people. So I feel like WRT, not just myself, but as a whole, has been has been around and has been consistently aware of the things that are affecting the community as a whole, that it, it creates that connection. And I think it's it's those types of relationships that really make people understand like, hey, you know, you, you've addressed everything we've gone through and I, I'm going to keep reaching out to you because I know someone will hear me because every place else I reach out, I, I don't get an answer. You know, that, like I, we were saying with the uh, with the system as a whole, you know, you have delays within your court system right now. You have people that are uh, understaffed. You don't get a lot of answers on time or in the in the time frame of which could could make a difference. Everything is so delayed and it's it's pushing it out. So being able to just put a pen to the paper and, and voice what you have to voice and know that someone's going to hear it is tremendous right now when you're constantly playing this waiting game and your life is in other people's hands. So having control of at least your emotions is so important to these individuals to be able to share their story and feel like they have a voice. Because like I said, when you share your story inside, you can 
suffer reprimand for that and you get pushback. So having that ability to be able to at least send it out to someone may or may not be that breaking point for some of these individuals who feel like they've lost it all and that they have nothing and that and, and no one even knows they exist anymore. The power the power that you give to an individual just by acknowledging their existence is something that words can never describe. You 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 don't you do, you will never know how strong that is until that person can come back around and, and hopefully you can see their success at at some point in time. But just know that the smallest amount of caring means the world and means the difference between life and death for a lot of these individuals. Just to know that their story was acknowledged, it, it can mean all the world, all the difference. Shannon Ross puts it this way. I would say that that is the, the, probably the only thing right now that can be done is more people from the general public that are not currently saying anything to let it be known that this is not something that they are content with, that they don't think this is the way that Wisconsin should be addressing um, its citizens, people who are going to be getting released back into society. We expect them to comport themselves as citizens, but we're treating them like, you know, just refuse, you know, something that can be uh, just thrown off to the side and whatever, ignored until they're back in your face and you have to look at them. On the next episode, Anthony Cooper gives his reaction to seeing men in jail asking for help in an online video recording. Thank you for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Justified Anger is an initiative of Nehemiah. This podcast was made with the cooperation and collaboration of Rebecca Barber, Anthony Cooper, Aaron Hicks, Shannon Ross, Jeremy Holliday, Dr. Karen Reese, and Charla Miller. A special thank you to the individuals that shared their stories and experiences of incarceration. Some individuals' names are not included to protect their identity. Production and editing is by Eli Steenlich.